I'm resigning in order to ensure that people understand that I've made mistakes. I should have adhered better to guidelines. I broke no law, but I feel that the distraction that this was going to cause and the hurt that it caused, of course, to many families should be acknowledged. Hello and welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Reem Mumtaz in Paris, standing in for Andrew Gray, who's taking a well-deserved vacation. In a few moments, our podcast panel will debate the controversy surrounding EU Trade Commissioner Phil Hogan, who you heard at the top of the podcast resigning as a member of the European Commission. He's been in hot water for breaching coronavirus rules during a recent trip to his home country of Ireland. And later in this episode, you'll hear from transatlantic expert Dan Hamilton about relations between the EU and the United States, the future of NATO, and what a Biden presidency would mean for Europe. But first, let's get to our panel. Matt Karnitschnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello. And Christian Oliver, one of our top policy editors in Brussels. Hi, Christian. Good to have you with us. Hello. So let's kick off this week's discussion with this highly unusual turn of events. Phil Hogan, the EU trade commissioner, has resigned a week after the controversy started around a trip he took to Ireland that seems to have flouted the COVID guidelines. Christian, can you just give us the 30-second redux on what exactly happened? Yep, as you say, it's a highly unusual time. We've lost a commissioner, uh, which doesn't happen that often, shows what sort of pressure this guy came under. It is all about busting or flouting the coronavirus rules. We first heard about this through the Irish press on Thursday, where he'd been attending a high society event with the, the Parliamentary Golf Club, which were 80 people in the room, which was against the Irish rules. Since then, drip by drip, it has appeared that Hogan is even more of a rogue elephant than we thought. Beyond the golf club rules, there was also, uh, he did not obey the quarantine rules for coming back from Belgium, and he also seems to have uh, flouted the guidance on going into one particular county which was under special lockdown, Kildare. So on these three fronts on which he was not volunteering information, we had a very messy week in which he vacillated, didn't seem to be telling the truth to his boss at the commission, and really didn't apologise in a way that anybody took very sincerely, particularly in Ireland. So he's hit a huge storm there and it landed on von der Leyen's desk. And now he's gone. So can we just kind of break it down a bit for our listeners who maybe haven't been following this like we have every day, every hour? We're Thursday, August 27th. This is when we are recording. As Christian just said, the first revelations came out in the Irish press a week ago. And I just want to kind of fast forward to this five-minute interview that Commissioner Hogan gave yesterday to RTE, the Irish broadcaster, in which he explains why he resigned. I don't know about you guys, Matt and Christian. I was really struck by one thing. In that interview, in five minutes, he says the word distraction seven times. This was a distraction, of course, for many people. It was a sufficient distraction from the job that I was doing. I should remove this distraction. This sort of distraction, the distraction that this was bringing without these distractions, the distraction that this was going to cause. It doesn't strike me as someone who really believes he needs to be going. He seems to be feeling like he has to go, but he's not really convinced that he did anything really wrong that deserves a resignation. And, you know, he says, I broke no laws. Of course, I broke no law when I went to Ireland. I could have adhered better to the guidelines. 
but I could have adhered better to the guidelines. It's become a distraction. And this was a distraction, of course. So I've come to the conclusion that I should remove this distraction. How did you guys hear it? What do you make of that statement? I mean, I can start there. I mean, for several days, he's been quite clear that, and his team has as well, that this is not a resigning matter. He has decided to try and tough this one out. And the interesting thing about his remarks yesterday is that he said, I decided to go. This was my decision. I resigned myself. Uh, I'm somebody he's that has been, been the, you know, the strong man as he always, you know, tries to make himself out as. Then he also said, though, something that suggested this was very much by mutual agreement and some kind of conversations that we have yet to get to the depths of what was going on with, with von der Leyen. He says we were trying to work out some mechanism by we, which we could support each other. What was, I was engaged with all day with the President of the Commission was to find a mechanism where we could actually support each other. Which sounds like there was some compromise deal, some mutual agreement that was carved out there. Also, what's the mechanism to support each other? Well, the thing that she, the question we need to be asking is which one of the ways that this could bite her, she thinks will bite her. Just by what she's been saying this morning, which is what you say Thursday morning, the thing I think that is most worrying to her. She's talked about how everybody in Europe is meant to be obeying all these coronavirus rules. I expect the members of the college to be particularly vigilant about compliance with applicable national or regional rules or recommendations. At the moment, it's only the Irish who are absolutely furious that their own politicians who make the rules aren't abiding by their own rules. But while the local politicians have to resign, the guy in Brussels seemed pretty untouchable. At the moment, that's an Irish issue. But I think she's seen that this could be an albatross round her neck that would appear at various points through her commission. If she's fighting a tide of Eurosceptics, this thing could come back again. Um, as she's trying to come up with a position of, you know, how one is meant to behave to control a pandemic, that one of her most senior guys has wriggled and squirmed and not told the truth about what he has been doing in abiding by the national laws that he was meant to abide by, just looks like the sort of thing that could be the albatross. It would just sit on her and be a problem that would be raised again and again. She seems, I think, to have neutralized this pretty early. He didn't want to go, but he's gone. I actually disagree. I don't think it would have been an albatross. I think a week from now, nobody would be talking about it outside of Brussels. Nobody really cared here. Still, nobody cares. I agree. I mean, although I, I have been predicting, of course, for days that he would have to go. Um, no, just kidding. I actually said the opposite because I agree with him that it is a distraction. If you look at this in the larger context of similar scandals that have befallen the European Commission over the years, it does seem pretty petty to me, especially if you consider that his actions, having dinner at a golf club with under 100 people, would be perfectly legal in much of Europe. What it says to me, though, is that if a national government comes out, which the Irish government has done in recent days, basically signaling to the commission president that they want their commissioner to be removed, that it's going to happen. Because if you look back at some of these other recent cases, look at Jean-Claude Juncker, who ran 
probably the largest, you know, tax dodging system that the world has ever seen as prime minister and finance minister of Luxembourg. There were absolutely no consequences for that, even though the details of it emerged just as he was taking over the commission. If you look at Gunther Oettinger and his racist comments a couple of years ago, that didn't prevent him from becoming budget commissioner. And if you look at Ursula von der Leyen herself and the investigations that are still ongoing in Germany about procurement issues at the defense ministry while she was defense minister or at her thesis, which she wrote to become a medical doctor, which a lot of people still consider to be plagiarism. None of these were reason to end their careers. And so I think there might be something else going on here between Hogan and von der Leyen that we don't know about. And I also think just that this pressure from the national government at the end of the day uh, was crucial. You actually raise a very um, sort of important point here, because, you know, what does this basically say about von der Leyen and sort of the the way she wants to run her commission? Um, You know, why did we get here? And like Christian was saying, what really happened between them? It seems from the outside that perhaps she felt that he wasn't being as forthcoming as he should have been from the beginning, that every few days, uh, you know, more and more information sort of came to light that he hadn't shared. And perhaps had he been a bit more forthcoming from the beginning, maybe there would have been a way to save his place? I'm not sure. He definitely played this extremely badly and he dug himself into an extremely bad place. And I think... One of the issues that is going to haunt him is that he provided a list of what he'd done and it transpired incredibly quickly that he had been roving around in lots of places that he hadn't actually declared. And there was a fundamental question of trust that is being addressed here. The thing that has taken me, though, and I've, I've only really been looking at this dimension of Irish politics for one week. And I think I would have, when this broke, I was sat in a fairly similar position to Matt in that I'd been through the Ertinger scandal. I'd seen the sort of pretty sacrosanct immortality um, of the, the commissioners here. So I started off in quite a similar position. I think the thing that was missed here, and I think would have been shown to von der Leyen in terms of the risk. And I think this is why I'm coming up with the albatross point or even something more damaging is the absolute ferocity that this got to on a pan-Irish level of all political parties. And it's not necessarily just a government because the system, again, in Brussels is meant to make you impervious to a government. But it's every single major party And, of course, during, like, listening to some of the interviews on RTA, I also heard the phone-ins and just the absolute level of rage of these people, each one with a story about a funeral they hadn't attended or a wedding they couldn't go to. Yes, it's still at the moment contained in a small country with its own very particular lockdown rules. But I think over the last week, some of that will have come to her attention, that there's something about the coronavirus mood that she's seen in this Irish fire, something that where this could go wrong. If then this becomes a sort of precedent of she has to deal with somebody else, if there's another problem in the commission. It seemed to me what she was doing today 
was she was just also stamping down quite a firm line because many places on Europe do not have the kind of interventionist sort of press that we've got in, in Ireland. I bet she suspects a lot of her commissioners are breaking the rules. So she's actually having to sort of lay down a rule of something that she can see can get pretty explosive. You know, I found her statement Thursday morning, her, her statement, her video statement, quite perfunctory. Last night, Phil Hogan submitted his resignation from the post as trade commissioner. I respect this. It wasn't like she didn't really try to find any way to sort of make this less difficult or less painful. And she quickly turned to where do we go from here? In accordance with Article 246 of the treaty, it is up now to the Irish government to present suitable candidates for commission. And so she has now said, you know, Ireland should submit uh, a man and a woman as, uh, you know, candidates to replace uh, Hogan. As in the past, I will invite the Irish government to propose a woman and a man. Where do you guys think Executive we're going from Vice here? President. Matt? Well, I just wanted to say, you know, that's why I think that there might be more than meets the eye here in terms of the relationship between von der Leyen and Hogan. If she really wanted to keep him, I think he could have weathered this. He could have given a more genuine apology than he did. Clearly, he bungled the response. But if you also consider that, you know, this just happened last weekend, right? And, you know, normally in a situation like this, if a head of government or in this case, head of commission wants to keep somebody, they will take steps to kind of, you know, let a bit of grass grow over the whole thing. And I take Christian's point, there was a lot of outrage in Ireland over this. But I think if he had responded better or been encouraged to respond better, you know, he might have been able to have gotten through this. Where do they go from here? I don't know. I mean, it also signals to me that, you know, maybe von der Leyen doesn't really rate Hogan or his expertise, and uh, she's fine to go ahead with without him. So, I mean, wasn't he slated at some point to go to the WTO and he didn't seem irreplaceable then? So, yeah, that's the point. And I think, I think indeed at that time, there was even talk in the commission that von der Leyen saw the departure of Hogan as actually a rather nice opportunity to have a reshuffle. There were some little internal frictions within the commission, particularly we think between people like Breton and Vestager. They thought, well, maybe this is a good opportunity if he's off to, to sort this out. There's a big job up for grabs. We can, we can do something there. I mean, it's a lot of this. Are you talking about a, a redrawal of portfolios? I think that might be quite likely. Yeah, I think I think to to just bring in the fresh Irish candidate as the trade commissioner is probably a bit unlikely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Matt and Christian. We're just going to have to leave it there. We've already spent way too much time on this already. Okay. Thank you. So, Matt, you did our feature interview this week. Tell us a bit more about who we're going to hear from. Well, I spoke to Dan Hamilton, who is one of the few people who has really been engaged in the transatlantic relationship up close for several decades. He was in Berlin in the 1980s, working for the Aspen Institute up until the wall came down. And in the 1990s, he became a special advisor to Richard Holbrook uh, when he became the uh, American ambassador to the reunited uh, Germany. He is now a professor at Johns Hopkins University at the School of Advanced International Studies, which is something of a training ground for American diplomats. And he was 
stranded in Berlin for several months this year because of COVID. And just before he went back, I um, sat him down to ask about his experience in Germany these past few months and his views on the German-American relationship, on the European-American relationship, and where things might go in the months ahead if Trump is reelected and if he's not reelected. Great. Let's have a listen to that conversation then. What is your impression now of the German-American relationship compared to other periods of tension? You were in Germany during the Reagan years when we saw mass protests against the U.S. deployment of intermediate-range nuclear weapons. How do you compare what is happening now under Donald Trump to that period? Well, I think it has become, unfortunately, a quite dysfunctional relationship over the last four years. Uh, there have been times earlier when the relations were not good. I think debates over the Iraq War with the George W. Bush administration, there were debates about INF missiles uh, uh, in during the Reagan administration. Uh, but I think the Cold War differences were always within a framework of the Cold War in which Germany was still dependent on the United States for its sovereignty, ultimate unification if possible – which most people didn't think would happen, uh, the safety of Berlin and just deterrence against the Soviet Union. And all of those things now seem to have uh, you know, receded in memory. Even though there's a concern about Russia's intentions, there's no overarching you know, glue, uh, I think, in the German mind. And there is a tendency, I'm always struck by, despite the fact that our countries are so deeply intertwined with each other, to sort of reduce the picture of the United States down to president's face. Uh, so right now, America is embodied by Donald Trump. And so most every German debate about the United States is refracted through that prism of just Trump. And I think that leads to a very skewed notion of what America is about. And that is not new. I've always been struck by how, despite most Germans think they know America, they're really the view of the United States is really not very sophisticated. There's a lot of worry that NATO is fracturing now amid tensions between Germany and the U.S. Do you think that that's really a serious danger? I think the NATO, as we've come to know it, is not a NATO that will survive under any president going forward. Under Trump, I think it's been hollowed out so much that we will – if Trump is reelected, you'll see the, basically the collapse of NATO. It might exist in some name, but it won't exist in any reality because countries simply won't believe the American guarantee. Some in the EU think, well, that's their opportunity to create an EU defense substitute. Uh, I think the reality is you'll see a mad scramble to Washington as countries try to hammer down some bilateral security guarantees, and they start to look increasingly over their shoulder at their neighbors because they don't have the reassurance that they've had for decades that the U.S. is there for them not only about the Russians, but about each other. And I think that's the presence of the U.S. has this re, has had this reassuring quality to help Europeans manage their own issues. It wasn't just about this external threat, and that's what's vanishing. I think if Joe Biden is elected, the temptation the Europeans will have to say, well, we'll go back to business. I think that would be a huge mistake. The Biden administration is, would be confronted with a huge onslaught of new challenges at home and abroad in which we'll need Europeans to do more, not less. And that means a different kind of NATO. It doesn't mean 
going back to some NATO. It means reinventing it. So there is an avenue here to create a new strategic concept for the alliance that positions us for the future, in which all of the issues like troop movements, um, you know, deterrence, defense, all of these kinds of the role of nuclear weapons, all of that could be done in a constructive way to position the alliance for the future. I think that would be the avenue open to the Biden administration. I think if Trump's elected, that'll be closed. The big question hanging over Germany and Europe is the relationship with China. This also has been a point of tension with the Trump administration. How do you see this playing out in the months and years to come? Well, I think, uh, you know, over two decades ago, we all made a bet on China. We said we would integrate it into basic structures of the international system. And if it would do that, then it would progressively start to transform um, and it would be called, at the, to what people said at the time, a responsible stakeholder. I think in the U.S. there's a broad consensus we lost that bet. I think the consensus is not yet formed in Europe whether they lost the bet. So we're at different phases of the debate. Um, I believe the Europeans will share many concerns the Americans share about the rise of China. But I, again, I believe Trump and his allies have tried to sort of force the allies and sort of browbeat them just to get into line on this confrontational course Trump has set rather than to engage with the allies about the nature of the challenge and how to work on it together. So, again, if there's a Trump re-election, I think that course will continue to divide the U.S. and Europe, and each of us will be less able to deal, in fact, with the rise of China. The avenue open to the Biden administration, in my view, is, um, well, again, I, I believe there is a bipartisan consensus about China. The difference is that a Democratic administration is most likely to want to form a coalition of like-minded democracies to engage China in the, in the full context. In fact, they could even use what the EU has said about China. It, in some areas, it is a partner. You want to work with China on climate change, on anti-piracy, on you know, very, a very number of things where uh, that is what we should do in our own interests. There are other issues where China is a competitor, and that heavily in the economic realm where it does not allow or forces technology transfer, does not allow investment in the country, uh, does all sorts of things that are just not part of its WTO obligations. And then there's the question of the systemic rival, in which basically is trying to shape and erode the, the current institution of international order and replace them or hollow them out with uh, illiberal norms that in the end do challenge us. So I think you could have a pretty good construction, uh, constructive dialogue with the Europeans on that frame if that's your inclination. But at the moment, the U.S. government has gone a different way. You mentioned Joe Biden. There's a lot of hope in Germany that Biden will win and that if the Democrats take control of the White House, that things will go back essentially to the way they were pre-Trump. What do you think of this expectation? Is that realistic? No. Uh, thinking that things will go back to normal will probably be the biggest mistake Europe will make if Joe Biden is elected. Uh, what Europe needs to do is think now, before the election, what it is prepared to do more to work with a U.S. that is intent on reinventing the transatlantic alliance. Uh, it's no longer an alliance in which the old deal about burden sharing could, can continue. Americans rightly ask why they still provide the bulk of support for 500 million Europeans. 
And they don't get many good answers to that question. So it is a deeply rooted feeling that's beyond party. Uh, Joe Biden is an in, in, you know, pr- intense personally, personal transatlanticist. So he's not going to uh, shake the alliance, but he'll want to reinvent it. He will want a Europe, that is a partnership that's more equal, in which the Europeans step up on a lot of issues. He'll want, probably want one, I, th- I would think, that is more global. Uh, the United States needs a partner, not a counterweight, as some here in Europe say, but a counterpart. We need a, a Europe that is can stand up with the United States to deal with a whole range of issues we can't deal with on our own, not just the rise of China, but climate change, issues in the Middle East, you know, rogue states, drugs, corruption. You can, you know, just go down the list. Who is our partner in that in that effort? It, it can only be Europe in the first instance. But the relationship has deteriorated so that neither side is really even thinking about it that way. And so this lack of thought about a, how a, a real alliance could work for the future, not one rooted in the, you know, uh, in the misty realms of the past, is what we need to focus our time on now. But how likely do you think that really is? I've talked to a number of European officials who are worried that even if Biden is elected— that in a few years, they could be faced with another Trump-like figure, and that would put the transatlantic relationship basically back to where it is now. If Donald Trump is not reelected, then the American people made a four-year decision that they uh, regretted and turned away from. So uh, just positing that the crazy Americans will do something crazy with their next election isn't really much rooted in much American history. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying you have to get out of the mindset that this is a protectorate type of relationship in which we're just rooted in an old old idea. It it is corrosive for both sides. It gives the Americans this sort of patronal type of patronage type of attitude to the Europeans, and it doesn't – it means the Europeans don't have to do much. And so I think that's what's ended. If you use a new – a reinvented NATO to deal with the challenges of reposition for the future, that's certainly possible. We need for the first time what I would call a a truly strategic partnership with the European Union, which the United States really has never developed, and that's what complicates things. We don't understand the EU. Many Europeans don't understand the EU, but it is the institution with which we have probably the densest network of relations in the world. It's the most important organization in the world to which the United States does not belong. And like it or not like it, we have to have a relationship with it that does something. Uh, And I believe we can do that. So if we can reposition our main institutions for the future and then just think about the challenges that we have in a more differentiated way, like China, as they said, partner, competitor, rival, uh, I think you can bring not only Europe together but a number of other democracies globally that share any number of these concerns as well. That was our own Matt Karnichnik in conversation with Dan Hamilton. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. If you like what you heard, we encourage you to rate the podcast by clicking some stars and leaving a review. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Next Tuesday, you'll get another episode of our pop-up series on the US elections, and the regular EU Confidential will be back on Thursday. I'm Rimumtaz in Paris. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening.